and welcome to Associated, a podcast making venture capital more accessible. I'm joined today by Lois. Hello, Lois. Hello, we're still in self-isolation. Yes, we are. We are. How are you finding it? Um, I, I actually love it. I love having time to reflect and um, primarily I love having time to make scrambled eggs. So it's good. Actually, that is a really <laughs> good point. I'm taking more time over my breakfast. Uh, who have we got today, Lois? We are joined today by Nick Sando from Octopus, and we're very excited. Thank you. We have an Octopus Ventures Chef's Table Challenge going on right now, where people share their um, finest lunches made on our on our Ventures Slack channel. So, I'm oh actually my gosh, that's such a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I've got a avocado toast dish that I called La Basique. That is currently number one. So. I should oh, know. Well done. You're top of the leaderboard. I'm the only one who's entered this challenge, but <laughs> it did start today. So uh, so I'm going to revel in it for a little bit. Although, will it result in people getting more and more into the idea of cooking? And then the next thing you know, it's like <laughs> <laughs> something that's taken like four hours for them to create like yeah. the beef wellington or, boring, or the like nut roast of the century. And then no one gets any work done. <laughs> Yeah, I, can't, I hope, I hope, kind of hope so, to be honest. I want to see what the team has up their sleeves. <laughs> no, for sure. That is actually a really good idea to keep the morale up. Yeah. Boast about your lunches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you have a good team spirit in these trying times. Yeah, it's when I put up the four-hour slow-cooked lamb ragu that I think some questions will be asked. But other than that, I think I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, let's stay on this track. I want to know a bit more about your team and what you do at Octopus. Can we talk about that a bit? Yeah. So uh, let's start with the team first. Um, So Octopus Ventures is one of the more active VCs in Europe. And a large part of that is the size of our team. So we have a, I think, 15 going on 20 strong investment team alone. Uh, Those teams are split up into three. So there's a deep tech team, which is where all the smart people seem to flock towards. (laughs) <laughs> there's a uh, future of health team, which is digital health and wellness investments. And then there's a future of money team, which is what I sit on. Uh, and we do all the fintech investments. Um, and and just, if it's smart people that flock to deep tech, what kind of people would you say flock to future of money? Well, well, so the rest of my team is quite smart, but I honestly, I've sat in a few deep tech meetings and I seem to come away pretty clueless. So obviously not me. <laughs> okay awesome awesome and is it quite specific is it like only fintech tools or is it broader than that it's like a north star so we did a deal last year which was pretty cool which was the cto was tim berners lee the founder of the web um and that was a data business um and that was done by our pods so it's not really has to be in the fintech it's just kind of a guiding principle for us um, and if you're selling to fintech providers, as this business was or intends to do, um, then it would fit under our remit. That's very cool. And and what was the reason for splitting it into such segregated teams? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the reason being is that I think it's just part of the product of scale with venture or venture capital firms is that you sort of hire more people and then it becomes a bit crazy because someone will bring in a business that looks at let's say car insurance and the rest of the team has to get up the curve on what an insurance business and what metrics to look at those insurance businesses are. And it just means that the knowledge, the switching cost of knowledge becomes really high. So I think naturally it makes sense to sort of break off and become specialists uh, so that there isn't that sort of 
getting everyone up the curve phase that we started to see when we had these huge, huge uh, WIP meetings. But do you all decide together as a team when you push through to IC? So when it gets to IC, it's mainly around deal terms. So it's leveraging like the knowledge to make sure that we're not offering, uh, you know, we're, we're using all the knowledge that we banked in the past about, you know, terms and runway and all that sort of mechanics. But the decision is brought pretty much through the process by that pod. But in the last meeting, people from other teams will join and make a decision based on that. And what stage do you invest in? So Octopus is, uh, as you may know, uh, early stage investors. So we're primarily um, Series A. We do seed deals and uh, we also have a growth fund, which lets us write bigger tickets. Um, The reason being is that our sort of our goal is to be able to back a founder from pretty much seed to sort of series D or even beyond. Um, so we've set up a couple funds to allow us to do that. Um, and we like to lead, um, we like to take a board seat and we like to, we have an infrastructure layer or underneath us that we've put together that helps individual founders be better, faster. Um, and then I guess beyond that, we have an office in America, which we don't invest out. So that's purely to help our companies make that transition to the States. And I think last time we counted, I think over 50% of our businesses had a presence in America. So it seems to be like the natural route um, for a lot of tech companies. So we set this infrastructure up to sort of facilitate that crossing. Cool. And, and what's the company that's recently done that? Uh, so Depop. Um, Depop had nice. a re- it really successfully. Um, and actually, as a little bit of a tip, so the way they did it and the way they raised from USBCs is they, the USBCs from our understanding love a great story, whereas the UK will really you know, dive deep on the metrics and the traction and the US do that too, but they also need that big vision. So like with Depop, for example, instead of positioning themselves as like a marketplace of streetwear, they position themselves as the platform for fashion entrepreneurs of the future. Right, and that is such so broad that the VCs were like, "Wow, this is this is really important for us. We need to make this hit this opportunity." Um, another example of that is like Elliptic, who is AML software for crypto. Um, they didn't propose that. They said, like, if you look at the future, ten to fifteen percent of transactions might be on blockchain. Therefore, you need to know who these people are because it's just like KYC. Um, and they made the problem much bigger. Um, or this is their vision anyway, but they presented it in a really grandiose way, which hits home with USBCs from what we've seen. That's amazing that you can point to two separate examples of a really similar scenario where portfolio companies have adopted the same approach, which I, I assume was shared with them by you guys because you've seen it so many times before and mm-hmm. can kind of advise them on what will work best for that transition. Exactly. And probably the biggest problem that we've seen companies not do is like really the homework around it. Um, so like rule of thumb, we, we say it costs around 2 million in two years to do the process properly. Um, and that's because a lot of it comes from the top down and the senior leadership. Like we need to go to America. They have a huge market, right? And it's, they do, um, but it's very fragmented in terms of state by state, especially in fintech. Um, and I think that if businesses did like six months more diligence on the whole, it would We've, we've had a couple of cases where it hasn't gone too well. Um, and that's primarily been that people have just thought their culture equals our culture, therefore we will do well. Um, and in reality, that just isn't, oddly isn't the case. You think it would be, but it isn't. Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's not about 
the US having a similar culture, just a much bigger market and therefore go and use the same process and the approach that you used here to go and succeed there? Yeah. And I, like, I with my business, my the second business that I founded, um, we made the same mistake. Like, so we saw a business in the US. We were already sort of passionate about this area and it was about male grooming and services. We saw the rise in this, like men were actually caring about how they look. This is a while ago, but it's continued to move on this trend. We saw this business in the States doing it and we thought, oh, it's so easy. We just do it in the UK and it'll work, right? We come to the UK and it's just a completely different dynamic. The barber shops and... Uh, the men's salons, they don't really take bookings and everyone likes to use cash still. It's a bit behind the US in that front and no one tips. It's like, it's not really a tipping culture. Um, and we made that mistake and it, we, the US business continues to do really well and we're like scratching our heads being like, why aren't we? And it was, I think a lot of that was because we didn't test the market before we launched and that was aimed to properly bite us in the arse. Yeah, and that was you moving from the US over to the UK. Yeah, exactly. I was in the US at the time. Yeah, and did you find your first and second business in the US? The first business was in the US, yeah. And so the second one was the one I just mentioned in the UK. The first business was a bit different. I kind of fell into it in the sense that I was at university studying like finance and economics. I thought I was going to be wearing like a suit on Wall Street. I'm so glad I'm not. Um, <laughs> so I was all, I'd already picked out my suit and I, I was doing this degree and a good friend of mine dragged me to this entrepreneurship society and I met an, entre- an engineer and this is at the time when like NFC, which is near field communication, it's the stuff that you used to pay with your phones that was like just coming into the iPhone and we're like, wow, this is going to be awesome. Phones will be able to talk with like items and you could just put a little NFC sticker on the item and we would say, this is awesome. Let's just start with clothing. So let's build little clothing labels that you could tap with your phone and you could buy them now. You can see how people wear them. Um, the shops can see what people are looking at, not necessarily buying. So we, we did a university startup competition, and this is like an American university startup competition. So the prize is like a good seed round in the UK. Um, <laughs> we, we won that, which was pretty, pretty nuts because at the time we were just like, should we just go to Mexico? Um, and after a, you know, a vote, we didn't. We went to New York actually and started this business um, and raised another round there too. Uh, and it was awesome, like the growth in the beginning, we were, everyone wanted to speak to us. We were the hot stuff. Um, we were waiting for that iPhone to come out with NFC. We read all about iWorld and we'd seen the, the blueprints. So we were confident it was going to come out. Uh, and it did come out. Um, just one little catch, which we should have known as classic Apple, is it was locked to third party developers. It was just for Apple Pay. Oh, no. Yeah, so we had, you know, we were speaking with like Converse and big brands and they were like, oh, sorry. You know, most of our users are iPhone users and oh, all the ones no. who care a lot generally seem to gravitate towards iPhones, especially in America, which iPhone uh, usage is even higher. It's not, it's like 60%. Um, so we were like, oh God, we raised all this money. We want to put it to work. Um, we did a pivot uh, if you will, to Bluetooth, um, but Bluetooth was just so much more expensive. Um, so we had to move to like uh, furniture and other types of goods where there isn't such a sell-through, so you can afford to sort of uh, connect that piece of that item to the consumer. Um, but it kind of, we didn't get, have anywhere near the momentum that we had when we had the NFC, and we ended up merging with this other fashion uh, tech company who wanted to use it for like uh, Pack, uh, tracking packages um, 
and spent about six months with them before getting a bit itchy feet. And that's when I went to start probably too quickly this business that I talked to you about before, which was the male beauty and barbering. Sounds like a real journey. Yeah, it was a real journey. Um, it was, I mean, it wasn't particularly fun living in New York when all your friends have got all this newfound money and you're still, you know, <laughs> running a net loss every month. Um, but it was, like, it was awesome. And I, for, in terms of time to start a business, there's no better time than when you have no real responsibilities besides from yourself. Um, I think there's like also a layer of ignorance around doing it when you're young. You don't really think, oh, what if this fails? It's just like, this will succeed. What do I do once I spend my, all this money once it succeeds? Like, it's a great mindset to be in because it forces you to take risks. And taking risks, I think even the best founders today are really open about the risks they take. So starting young, I would advise people. And at least it's almost like you go through business school the hard way. So instead of reading about the case studies in the textbook, you're like learning what not to do quite early on. That's kind of how a part of what me looks at it. Uh, but it also gives you a really good understanding of like what it's like to be a founder on the emotive sense. And especially because for me, things didn't go particularly well. Um, and when founders generally speak to VCs, it's, they don't really want to show themselves in too bad a light. Um, because if they do do that, then the VC might think there's stuff wrong. So they'll come to you and be like, oh, things are great. And the only time... They'll tell you that things really aren't great is one, if you have a great trusting relationship, which is why that's the best thing to set up. Or two, if things are so bad that they now need to tell you and at that point it's probably too late. Um, so I find that that has probably been the biggest value for me in the way that like when I speak to entrepreneurs, like, I know that things don't always need to go well and it doesn't always have to be the sort of here's the highs report. It can be the highs and lows and the lows can be more honest. Um, so I would say that being an operator role and being a founder actually, I think makes, I hope makes really good VCs. Um, and if you look at some of the best VCs out in the States, right, they've had these operator roles and they, they can communicate with founders, I guess, in a way that sometimes someone who's maybe just come from a consultancy background might find a little bit harder, um, not to say it's impossible at all. Yeah, totally. And I think your story is really cool because actually it's not that uncommon. There are lots of people who've done things that are similar to you but what we tend to hear about in mainstream press or NVC would be more like you know founders who've founded multi-billion dollar tech companies and then they've got all this cash so they start a VC fund and then those yeah. people train people and that's the kind of narrative that you see a lot whereas actually I'm not and it's not to say that those people didn't experience knockbacks and challenges that I'm sure make them incredible VCs but that's also possible on a different and smaller scale and actually really helps in terms of bringing that knowledge to funds that are a little bit smaller and operate at like, you know, seed level and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the success rate is now, but it's definitely not the majority succeed. So where are all these, where are all these people who aren't succeeding going? And some of them like myself just have such a bug for startups, right? That I was just like, okay, I've got to either work for another one and that could be an option. I've got to start another one. Probably shouldn't do that because I should probably start making money at this point in my life. <laughs> and, or I've got to join a venture firm. And I think people often think that you need like Lois, just like you mentioned, to have this sort of amazing exit under your belt to ever be considered by, you know, a top tier VC. And I think that's like fundamentally not true at all. Um, I know plenty of, you know, 
even one of my uh, ex co-founders is works with um, you know Francesca. So there's he does, know, yeah. And yeah. I worked at a failed startup as well. So there's hope, people. There's hope. Yeah, exactly. And, and maybe people don't talk about them as much, so they don't get aired. Like when you do your intro pitch, it's not, hey, I worked at a failed startup. Maybe if you're bold, but, um, but oftentimes but, <laughs> you're talking about your successes. Yeah, right, right place, right time. But I often bring it up because, um, to your point, Nick, that you know, if you say that, sometimes I, I see the founder's shoulders that she go down in kind of like a, oh gosh, she gets it. Yeah. Um, because if you've been through that experience of every single day, you're on the brink of something going disastrously wrong, constantly just putting out fires, that if you have the, I don't think you mentioned earlier, just like that ability to be empathetic towards the journey that they're going on, and and turn around and put your hands up and like look I fa- like I failed <laughs> like my yeah, startup went so went great. under yeah and relaying like so I went to one of uh, one of the portfolio companies I worked with Christmas party and we were on the rooftop and I he's got out to go raise I think a Series B round and he's already raised you know five six seven million under his belt and I just turned to him and I was like you are one of very few people who's raised you know Series A money from a top to VC like well done like this is absolutely incredible you are in such a minority and he looked at me and he was like thank you like no like thank you so much for appreciating that because from generally it's when's the next round you know when's the next round it's more 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 and i and i totally get that because founders you know they do promise the world but it's nice to stop and think say just you know well done like you've done something i couldn't do you know and you should be super proud of it because most people can't do this um so I think you're totally right. And that just, as you mentioned, just makes the shoulders go down and that creates that trust that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And, and I think just to add to that, you know, venture capital has that reputation of you get given a huge amount of money and then you're just expected to grow, 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 grow. So it's really worth, I think, for founders considering whether venture capital is right for them, because even though you are going to get hopefully a level of empathy, um, at the same time, the whole business model of venture capital yeah. is is surrounded by the idea of you grow fast and you exit, and that's that's why we're giving you this yeah. money, mm-hmm. not not for you to grow a nice family business. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, there's that real struggle for founders thinking, well, I need capital, I want to sell a big vision, but actually, is that the reason why you're doing it, and that's what you want? Yeah, the like you think it's the right move, right? You're like, oh, that's millions of pounds. I should do that. But in reality, like, if you handed me a lifestyle business, you know, like <laughs> you turned over a couple of million each year, you didn't have to grow it two hundred percent, and you'd have someone barking orders down. You like, that seems like a pretty nice life. Um, but again, you know, it's it is it is such a cool area to work in, though, because you get to be around these businesses growing at like three hundred percent. So from a someone who you know is a venture investor, you are on the sidelines as much as you are in the weeds for a lot of the business's life cycle. But it's just, that's, that I think part of the, what I love about it is just coming into interact, interaction with these you know, founders who are sort of ready for that journey. And yeah, and there's lots of talk, isn't there, about what makes a good VC and like we could talk about that to the death really. Yeah, <laughs> but exactly. um, I think, you know, Oxbus did a round of hiring recently, didn't you? And you're, I think, in the process of interviewing those people now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so you know more than most about. <laughs> You've got coronavirus, <laughs> um, but yeah, we are. We um, we we did go through that hiring process, and I think we're hiring 
four or five new people, which is like material for a for a VC. Um, and I think part of that is just because the fund is growing and there's just so many great opportunities that we're like, okay, let's double down on this. Um, when we thought about what the process would look like, we thought basically we need difference in groupthink, right? So that's like what I thought we came to the conclusion makes was one of the things that make a great VC is when you have people who don't think is a herd because you have a herd of people, you might as well just have one of them um, as well. It's a lot cheaper. And also um, it just leads people to just confirmational bias. Yeah, and I love the idea that when you talk about what makes a good VC, you're not talking about one individual, but you're talking about the fund. Um, yeah. I think that's cool and not something that you actually tend to hear. Like, yeah, and, and if you look at Octopus, there is no individual. Um, if you look at other funds, and I won't name them, but they have really charismatic individuals with huge experience under their belt. Don't get me wrong, if you can get a touch point with that individual, it's amazing, but it's a risk if you put yourself as a sort of a one one woman or one man band, right? And that becomes mm. sort of who the founders want to gravitate towards. Um, so I guess to go into the hiring process the way that we did it, because it was a bit unusual, um, was we did it all blind. So we did no CVs, no names, um, and it was just you had to answer three questions, three or four questions about like, what do you think makes a good VC? What would be the hardest thing? Um, and then if you pick a pod, like I mentioned earlier, so say you picked future money, You'd be asked, like, out of payments, lending, uh, insurance, and I think blockchain, what area excited you the most? Um, and what we looked for is opinions which almost differed from ours, right? Because if it was just a bunch of what we'd seen, we were like, oh, okay, cool, we've got that view. But for views which were very sort of maybe contrarian or just novel, right, we, we love those. And those are the applications that we accepted. And... I don't think we've actually even seen who these people are yet, we've just, which is going to be awesome. Um, uh, but this next stage, we actually will then sort of take the masks off, look at the CVs, um, because the next stage, we like to have a balanced shortlist. So it's kind of required for that. I'm going to ask, have you met them yet? Because <laughs> surely the danger of... <laughs> We're going to probably maybe do some by Zoom. I saw some, you know, we had some group assessment days in the diary. So we'll see how that looks, see how that plays out. It's tricky, um, but we also... You know, we don't. We want to keep this process moving as best we can, but there, it will be a bit annoying because you want to have a human element of it. Because so much of what we do is making connections with people, right? And it's tougher to get a feel for that over over Zoom calls. Yeah, for sure. And the human connection is, in some ways, even more important when you're prioritizing diversity of thought because it's important to have contrarian views and different views, but you ultimately need those things to be able to meld together. And for those people to be able to work collaboratively, don't you? Yeah. And I think you need to set up like environments for conflict. Um, and, you know, I've noticed one of the big differences in the US and UK is the sort of aversion to conflict in the UK. Like we don't, we get a bit more awkward. Um, and so, and I still haven't found the best way to do that. Right. It's, it stems from if you have a team and this is, I think another benefit of the sub teams is you get more, you get closer with all the people on the sub teams so they become more like, uh, as much as they are work colleagues, they become friends. And with friends, you're, you know, I get called out by my friends all the time and there's no conflict problems in that friend group. Um, <laughs> but in my work, uh, it, or what I've observed in work is it is a bit more reserved, right? And I think by sort of breaking down that barrier, it can be like, oh, you know what? I actually don't think what you're saying is actually correct at all. And me not going, <laughs> you know, big inhale, but just saying, cool, like explain that. Um, 
And the US, I think, get that a little bit more right from like the from what I've listened and books I read from those, they don't have a, an aversion as much to sort of just say you're wrong. And maybe that's because a lot of them are set up like in a partner only structure or senior only structure, whereas we have much more tiers of levels. So there becomes like a bit of that. But um, yeah, I don't know how, how you go mm. on. What's the, what's the ideal resolution, do you think, of that kind of conflict? Because I wonder if part of the reason that you might avoid conflict is because you wouldn't know how to resolve it. Like, does one person have to be right or do you ideally come to a compromise or do you agree to disagree? Yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting. So the, the, the best method for doing that, if there's two people with varying opinions, right, um, and they're, they're very, like, binary opinions, you, you send those two people away and you say, come back with a proposal. Um, and what it does is it forces two opposing views to actually work together as opposed to what normally happens is like a mediator who jumps in. Mm. Um, this, I think that I coined this one from Bill Campbell, if you know that coach who did, who did like Eric Schmidt, um, Steve Jobs, that was his method. Um, and that seems to be quite an effective way to do it is to just actually let the two people resolve and come back because then it forces a solution as opposed to just having people play like mediator. I like that. Shall we move on to question time? Yeah. I would love to move on to question time. So this is from Julia. So thank you very much, Julia. Is there such a thing as work-life balance in VC? Or do you just need to dedicate the next 10 years of your life to your job? I'm a workaholic and I find it way too easy to slip into work and leave everything else behind. And the more experience I get, the more unhealthy this seems to me. Many corporate culture books preach happy employees make successful companies but in practice it's not always like that what are your thoughts nick oh so i think one of the luxuries of venture is you get much more of a work-life balance than you do compared to some of the other um, professions in finance Um, you might make a little bit more money in the early stages of your career um, but you definitely sacrifice that sort of time outside of work. You're very right, Julia, in the sense that um, you will start gaining more responsibility and essentially we max out with portfolio companies, right? So if you're on the board of one, it's all right. Then two, three, four, five, up to like eight and you sort of have all your time being used up trying to you know, take care and keep up to date with what's going on. However, I don't think that if you are a workaholic and you are working all the time in venture, you will make a particularly good VC. Um, the reason being is that I think keeping a fresh perspective, as cliche as it might sound, is actually so important in this role because one, you have to be optimistic. You have to be able to come in and believe what the person is saying and try and see, see value in it. And if you are so busy, it's very easy to just put stuff aside and put decision-making aside and all that sort of stuff. And I just also think that your job is to not necessarily see the future, but just see the present really, really clearly. And just like anything, if you have lots of stuff in your mind, that's really difficult. And therefore, it is very easy to get sucked in sort of the venture lifestyle when you're at breakfast and evening events, breakfast, evening events. And I think that is just, you will burn out quickly and you need to sort of pick and choose ones that are with people that you, you know care about and you respect highly, um, but also say no to a lot of stuff. And I think if you ask what's the hardest part about venture, it is really about saying no across the board. Um, and the people who are really great at saying no can free up time to things that are worth saying yes to. 
No, I think that's really good advice. And actually, not on the flip side, but from a founder's perspective, they often are complete workaholics. And it's almost something that from the past episodes, people people have said, you know, they just have to be obsessed with the mission that they're that they're trying to solve or, or the business that they're trying to grow. Mm-hmm. Turning again a little bit on its head, because we ask a lot of our speakers, you know, what what do you look for in a founder? I'm going to switch it up a bit saying what are the alarm bells where you, you see a founder and you think, you know, you shouldn't be doing that or those are the characteristics that are a little bit warning signs for me? Yeah, this is an interesting one because a lot of people will say, if you go to a founder and say, why are you doing this? And they go, to make a load of money, that you should go, red flag, right? So if from my opinion, from my experience, and I think a slightly an octopus shared view, we like to invest in founders who are doing this for more than money. Uh, but I don't think that actually is necessarily a red flag. I just think you need to find the right fund for you in that case. Um, because that, you know, although that's not the most honorable mission, that is a mission. And that will result in that, uh, wealth and value creation for everyone. Um, red flags um, for me on founders. Well, the one killer one is if they sort of only look at one person in the room who they think is the most important person. I think that is like such a trap that so many of them fall into. They think, oh, this is a firm where the partner makes all the decisions. So I'm only going to speak to the partner and I'm going to ask to get fast track to the partner. That just one annoys the partner because it means that they have someone like biting at their heels and two, it annoys everyone else who's kind of supporting you. So I think that's like a pitfall that you should avoid. Um, But... I think, you know, the, the, the sort of the key is if you ask the founder what success looks like, right, to them, and they don't have an answer. They're just like, ah, you know, we want to make a lot of money for our VCs, right? Do you, did you start this business to make money for VCs? Probably not. You probably did it at least for yourself. Um, and that is so, so often where founders don't have like a really like lovely answer to that and it's just like, it leaves you so sort of um, downbeat after a response like that. So I like to have a clear, like, why are you doing this answer? Yeah, I wonder if part of it's transparency as well, like to your point about the question, why are you doing this? And if it's if it's to make money, frankly, if someone said that to me, I'd be like, wow, that's very honest. <laughs> I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd respect the candor at the very least. Um, yeah. And I'm really glad that you talked about the speaking to only you know the person who looks like the most senior in the room and I think like frankly often they're wrong and it's kind of embarrassing um and really really irritating and that's part of the reason that we kind of run this podcast because you know everyone who works quote unquote below the partner is important too that's why they have a role and if you try to bypass them it kind of it does actually fly in the face of what the partner set up so in a roundabout kind of way you're not respecting the process that, that they think is important as well. Yeah, that's completely right. Lex. I mean, who's going to be carrying, who's going to be writing the IC paper? Probably not the partner. Probably going to be the person you're speaking to. Um, so getting them on your side is so important. 100%. 100%. And I mean, we, we've touched quite a bit about your, your journey and, and your experience working at startups. And as, as you said, you have had various options. And the reason why you decided not to start another startup was because you felt like maybe you needed, needed a bit of a change. It's pretty cool. Oh, you risk, you risk is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some money. Um, 
but um, it's a real bug, right? Do do you miss the the operational, the the getting down? I know you mentioned weeds earlier, but like actually building something. I've talked to quite a few um, investors, especially junior levels, um, and they kind of really it kind of goes two ways. After some people are just like, I am not starting again or I'm not even going to start <laughs> like it, it's so hard or um or the other side is you know oh this is really actually giving me the urge to get back yeah. into it again so um do, do you miss it is it something that you might want to do again or oh, is totally it just miss it. you totally yeah? miss it um <laughs> however so I miss it deeply especially when you're around your companies which are doing so well and you're like oh this is so easy why did I ever get out of this um and there's like a real buzz and like I love going to hang out with companies in their offices because you're like back in it, you know, you know, you roll out your sleeves and you realize there's nothing for you to do. Um, but I think that actually, and this is something that I'm sort of getting to terms with. I don't think the, the longer you spend in VC, I'm not sure actually that gives you many skills which are that applicable to running a startup. Um, and this is a painful realization when I tried to think, oh, you know, if I were to join a startup again, what position would I join at? Um, you know, you know, head of fundraising, that, that's not a role. You know, that's like a role that you're used every like every 18th month, right? Um, so you know a lot about that, but it's not particularly valuable. You see people go in as like strategy, but I'm, I'm again like, really like you're all you kind of light touch. Um, but... I guess like maybe marketing VCs would be quite good at because we're obsessed with like CAC and LTV and these are the numbers which drive a successful marketing team. But it is a painful realization that the longer you spend in VC, sort of the, the less likely you are to get back into a startup, which um, I'm still coming to terms with. I'm not sure I'm there yet. That's a really interesting point. And I, I think you're right that it's, it's easier the other way around, so to speak. So much easier. Um, yeah. For sure. It would be like, you know, it'd be, it'd be like, you know, amazing career at a startup and then you, then you move into venture and you, you, know, you have all this knowledge. Um, I think that would, is probably the, the better than the other way around. Um, I haven't seen that many entrepreneurs who've made success, uh, or VCs who've made successful entrepreneurs. There's a few, but there's not that many. No, no, that, that's, that's right. And actually, um, one of my favorite things to do, and I don't think you really learn it, you, you kind of do learn it on the job, but is I love listening to podcasts about founders' journeys um, because I think you can learn so much from them that you can kind of steal and then pass on to, to you know, startups that you meet. So two that my, my most recent favorite, and I'm just telling everyone about it, is a startup by Gimlet. Okay. Um, I don't know whether you've come across that one, but that one's all about guy who's trying to start a podcast actually, which was very fitting given yeah, what, yeah. <laughs> what I was what I was about to start to do. And it was so great learning all about his failures and his achievements. And yeah. gosh, there was there's his first episode is him pitching to a VC, and it's honestly one of the worst pitches I've ever heard. And I'm just like, wow, like that you managed to raise money is so impressive. Yeah. Um, and the second one is we crashed. Um, which is all about WeWork um, and and that journey of of you know skyrocketing up and then crashing miserably down. Um, so yeah, two podcasts that I think I've learned a lot from and hopefully will 
pass on that knowledge to anyone that will listen. <laughs> long extents of ever growing. I think I think I think I took Lois's phone when we when we met last and added one, and she had about forty on there. So I need to I need to mind you too for some more essential listening. Obviously, beyond dissociated, which is my new favorite podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much, Thank Nick. Well said, well said. <laughs> I think that's Amazing. the perfect place to end. We should oh. thank Nick very much for his service. <laughs> um, yes, you obviously mentioned that you were hiring at the moment. Can people still apply or are you kind of in the, the second phases? Uh, I, think, I think most of our roles have been filled. That being said, I would stay tuned because I think that we're going to be releasing a couple more roles um, in the not too distant future. Um, this will be more along that maybe the scouting and yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting investment roles that we're putting out there. So just keep an eye out, watch the space, I guess. Is to say. Amazing. And you gave some good tips for the application, you know, making yeah, sure that your ideas are a bit different. Any yeah. other tips there? Uh, leave it all on the table. Um, don't take some time over your applications. The amount of one word answers we saw to like uh, questions that says you have a 250 word limit were outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we saw some amazing uh, music quotes, which, although were quite entertaining, they weren't necessarily the best <laughs> answer. <laughs> um, I won't go into the actual quotes, but they were quite funny. Um, yeah, so just be different, but, but yeah, exactly. Okay, great. And if there's someone looking for investment, how can they contact you? Um, so you can email me, uh, and you can find my email on the website. I'll give you that as a clue. Pretty easy. Um, and or you can just reach out to me, I guess, on LinkedIn, but I'm not as good as that. So I would say go through the website. Okay. Thank you so much, Nick, for your time. Really enjoyed your story and learning about Octopus. I mean, it's such a great fund. Um, and yeah, thank you. You're very kind. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks, Nick. And yeah, thank you so much for listening to Associated. Please do subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you're listening to us. Um, it's really important. And for all our updates on the latest guests and episodes, you can find us on Twitter at associated underscore pod. And if you want to get in touch with questions, you can email us. We are at associatedpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.